0: The following message is by Pastor Andrew Beto, Pastor of First Baptist Church of Orchard, Texas. More information on First Baptist Church Orchard can be found at fbcorchard.com. Reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock So in everything, do to others what they what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law, and the prophets. The word of the Lord. Please be seated, dear Jesus. God, I ask that you would be with us this morning, and that you would be in the words of my preaching. That you would open the minds. Of the people in this room up to your holy truth. God, I ask that you would guard my lips, that I would speak nothing that does not come from you. Lord, that you would purge all of the things that we have brought in here from the outside, that we would be left open before, open and bare before your word. And Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Can you all hear me in the back? Is this loud enough? Everybody good? Air conditioners on? Let me know if you can't. Hub, turn your hearing aid up. OK? Move your hair away from your ears. <laughs> Got it. So my, my wife and I, uh, yesterday, we've been running. Well, you get, what? OK. My wife and I have been running. We, we run so that I don't, because I eat donuts. I like donuts. I have kind of an eating disorder. I eat donuts two at a time, and they get stuck right in here. So my wife makes me run all the time, because you know she wants me to live past 40. And um, it was raining yesterday, so instead of running, we did P90X, right? We did P90X, the ab workout. Yeah, it was horrible. It was, it was horrible. I can't f- Oh, that's not cool. That's not cool. I'm li- Come on now, that's not cool. There, there are, there's some good abs. There's some good abs underneath all this fat. Once you get the fat gone, there's some good abs underneath there. Yeah, that's right. All right, so we get you know we get in there I do probably about thirty percent of it and I'm feeling like somebody just beat me to death yesterday so you know whatever I don't know I didn't expect for that to happen you know, it's funny how expectations work you know you you go out there and I expect well I'll do some I'll be able to do this exercise because I've always been able to do you know ab exercises but the stuff that they had us doing—it was crazy. It wasn't anything that I've ever. It was like take your feet, put it behind your head, and then roll around, and now do that 400 times. That was the first one. Good job, you know. No, nah, I mean I wasn't expecting that. You know, and then you then you roll around and look at the other kind of the other the other aspect of of expectation. We're sitting in the car, driving to drop my daughter off at my at my folks' house, and we're like, oh hey, you're going to. You go into Bibi's house, who's gonna be there? And she's like, BB's gonna be there. That's what she calls my my mom. Who else is gonna be there? Thinking she's gonna say my dad. She's like, Cookies are gonna be there. Cookies! I'm like, okay, that's right. She expects cookies whenever we show up at my mom's house. Because, you know, whether it's nine o'clock in the morning or ten o'clock at night, when my daughter gets there, she gets cookies. You know, they've got figs in them, so it's healthy. They're they're fig cookies. Right? But she has that expectation that when she goes to grandma's house, she'll get cookies. See, we're supposed to have that attitude when it comes to coming in contact with God. Not that he's going to give us cookies. Sometimes he does. But we need to have an expectation that our relationship with God will bear fruit. That it will be something real. Jesus has just gotten done with the ethical portion of the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's his most concise period of instruction on human ethics that we find in all of the Gospels. And he's concluding that. And like any good preacher, any good speaker, he's going to conclude it with a summary. And what we have in the verses that we read this morning are a summary of the ethical portions of the Sermon on the Mount and we can condense those down to two very simple statements Christians should seek God expectantly and they should love their neighbors sacrificially let me say that again Christians should seek God expectantly and love their neighbors sacrificially see first Christians should love their God expectantly Christians should desire their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and with all their strength. They should devote themselves to him and rest in his provision. They should love him expectantly, expecting that he will respond. This passage that draws at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and summarizes everything, we can find another passage that's, that's very similar to it. The passage comes in Matthew 22. Later on, uh, one of the Pharisees will come to Jesus and will say, what's the most important commandment? And they're trying to trip up Jesus. They're trying to see what he's going to say, try to pin him down to see which camp he's going to fall into. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Right. This is a summary of what he believed about God and what he believed about the law. right? And we can interpret the verses this morning through that lens, through this statement of faith. See, all of Scripture can be broken down into two basic commands. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, and love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God, who is a responsive God, a God Who interacts with his creation? A God who seeks us out. A God who is interested in us. The first part of this passage is made up of three present tense commands, right? Well, that doesn't mean very much, right? Doesn't mean very much to people who have you know basic English like I do, right? Three present tense commands. It just means that it's something that is supposed to be continuous, and it's supposed something that you're supposed to do. The way that that you can translate it better is is instead of asking, you will receive, it's keep asking and you will receive. For he who asks receives. Back in verse 6-8, Jesus encouraged his disciples to rely on God for the basics of life, for food and clothing, trusting God that God would know what they needed. See, he's, he's encapsulating what he's already taught them. He's applying what he's already taught them. He's taking what he taught them and making it applicable for life. He says, keep seeking and you will find. For he who seeks, finds. Back in 633, he says, but seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Knock and the door will be opened. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. In the Gospel of Luke, the, the Gospel writer records a parable before this. And I, just to give you a brief, just to, just to go off track for a little bit here, when we read the Gospels, what we have to realize is that the Gospel writers are recording things that they heard Jesus say. And the teachings that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount were like his stock sermon. They were what he preached in multiple places. When he sat down with a group of people, this is what he taught. And so when the gospel writer in Matthew records it a little bit differently from the gospel writer in Luke, it doesn't mean that the gospel writers were wrong. doesn't mean that they were just making it up. It means that they were recording things a little bit differently because they're remembering different events or they're remembering things from different viewpoints. Okay, And by figuring out... By looking at the way that they're different, we can understand different aspects of what Jesus taught. And it can, sometimes it can kind of illuminate something that's there. So when we look at knock and the door will be open to you, we don't see any reference to it in, in Matthew. But if we look in Luke, we see it. Right before he says knock and the door will be open to you, there's a parable. Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three more loaves of bread. A friend of mine is on a journey, has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. So Jesus is telling him a story about a man who is asleep in bed with his wife and all his kids, and everybody's asleep, and his neighbor comes over and knocks at the door. I don't know if anybody has ever had that happen, when your neighbor comes over and knocks at the door at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's not a good thing. It's generally never a good thing. Okay? Never a good thing. But here, the neighbor comes over, knocks at the door, and says, I need some bread because my my friend just came on a long journey. And Jesus says... I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, right? Yet because you shamelessly and audaciously asked him, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, what he's doing here is he's telling an argument from greater, from the the less to the greater. What he's saying is, even if you who wouldn't normally get up in the middle of the night, will get up and give your brother some bread because he knocked on the door and was audacious. How much do you think God is going to do? If you ask him, knock and the door will be open to you. If you knock on the door of God, he will not ignore you. He will not turn you away. See, we should rely on God for all of the things that are necessary for life in the kingdom the idea is clear if we will approach god persistently he will not abandon us see ask and god will give us the things that we need seek and you will find god knock and you will be allowed into his presence jesus is calling his disciples to faithful persistent un ending prayer but it's important that we realize he's not saying this because god can't hear us right he's not saying be persistent because god is not a good god or because he he, he's going to ignore you right? he's not saying ask over and over and over again because maybe you'll change god's mind like when my son comes up and he's like please you know we have this cd of he really likes planes fire rescue whatever that's the new disney movie and And we got in this CD, and it's got this book on it where the guy's reading it to him, and he listens to it over and over and over and over and over again, like 50 times. And every time we get in the car, he's like, please put on the CD, please put on the CD. I'm like, no, I'm not going to put on the CD. And it's like, well, if he asks me enough times, it'll be so annoying that I'll put the CD on because it's easier for me to listen to the CD than listen to him. Why? That's not what Jesus is telling us to do. He's not telling us, annoy God to the point where it's easier just to give you what you want than to listen to you. Right? That, that's not what he's saying. He's saying be persistent in asking God because that builds a relationship between you and God. It trains us to see our dependence on God for life and breath and everything. If you turn to God all the time, in all things, for everything that you need, it will build a dependence in you on God. It enables you to see the good things that we do, not as the fruit of our own righteousness, but of God rising up inside of us. Right? If we're relying on God for everything, if everything that we do is bathed in prayer, then there is not the danger that we're going to see ourselves as the author of the good things that we do. Right? It's not like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie who go out and like adopt like 50 kids and like, oh, look at us, we're so cool, right? I get all the glory for it. No, we do good things bathed in prayer, in the light of God, to be the hands and feet of God, to live incarnationally in the world, right, as God's agents here. Not so that we get glory, so that God gets glory through us. It changes our minds and our attitudes from self-reliance to God-reliance from self-worship to God-worship, it changes that part of us that rejected God in the first place. Every time we rely on God, every time we go to God expectantly, we deny the worship of ourself, the worship of the human will that is the God of the world we live in. It is an act of turning away from all that is evil in this world. See, Jesus is telling his disciples that life in the kingdom of God is to be spent in total, constant dependence on God. And and thus they should persistently seek him. They should love the Lord their God, who is a loving father, We are encouraged to pray in the knowledge that God is good and that His will is good, even if we don't understand it. See, sometimes we seek God, and He doesn't answer us the way that we wanted Him to. Sometimes sometimes we pray, and He either doesn't answer, or He doesn't give us what we asked for. So Sometimes no matter how much we ask or how much faith we have in God, he doesn't answer our prayers. Paul tells us that he asked God over and over and over again to remove a thorn in his flesh. We have no idea what that was. We don't know. It could have been some kind of persistent sin in his life. It could have been some kind of persistent opposition that he was facing we don't know what it was we know what we do know is that he was in anguish because of it it was something that caused him almost constant pain and heartache and it was something that he prayed to god to remove this is paul right this is paul this is the best missionary that the church has ever had right this is the guy who met christ on the road to damascus and had this catastrophic transformation in his life this guy who who constantly suffered and traveled and was in the will of God all the time, he asked God, please take this away from me. And you know what God's response is? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Brothers and sisters, there are times when we will suffer because we're going to suffer there are times that we are selected by God to be poured out as a drink offering on the ground that it glorifies God more for us to suffer and persist and persevere and glorify God through it and that's not fun and it's not attractive but it's real and we have to figure out how we're going to deal with that and and if you don't if you don't believe me We have to just simply look at the example of Christ, right? Christ was as close to God as you could ever be. He was closer to God than you could ever be. He was a part of the Trinity, right? He was a part of the Godhead from before the beginning of time. He lived a perfect life without sin, in perfect communion with God. And he goes to God on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what he says? He says, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go up on the cross and die. Please don't make me do this. And God told him no. And in both instances, do you know what Paul's response is? Do you know what Jesus' response is? All right. Not my will, but yours. Paul says it this way. He says, therefore, I will glory in my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We are encouraged to pray in the certain knowledge that we follow a loving God and that He will give us the things that we need. And if He doesn't give it to us, then we don't need it. So he gives us this image of a man whose son asks him for a piece of bread or asks him for a fish and then the man doesn't give him a stone he doesn't give him a snake because he loves his son he gives his son what his son needs he doesn't intentionally hurt his son jesus asked the question he says if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children What do you expect God is going to do? God will give you good gifts. See, we love God expectantly when we go to him in prayer for the things that we need and the issues that trouble us, when we trust him with the deep concerns of our heart. We acknowledge that he is powerful and that he is good and that he is all we will ever need. We worship him with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our strength and all of our skill with all that we have, and with all that we are. So what does this look like in the life that we live? We have to figure out how to live in total dependence on God. We have to learn how to lift up everything in our life to God. And we have to ask ourselves why we don't. And I think sometimes... We don't lift up the things in our life to God because we are either, A, afraid that He's not there and He's not going to answer, or B, we're afraid that if He doesn't answer, it'll kill our faith. And so we do these these hedging our bet prayers like, well, God, you know, just um, whatever is Your will. We don't raise up specific concerns to Him. Brothers and sisters, we are told by Paul to bring all of our concerns to God he said be anxious for nothing but in all things by prayer and petition with Thanksgiving make your requests known to God but here's the important thing he says the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of Christ Jesus See, we have to as we come into the presence of God as we lift up the things to him we have to rely on the promises that God's made promises that he may not answer your prayer in the way that you want it he may not answer the prayer in the way that you expect it but he will answer your prayer with his peace he will give you his peace we need to rely on promises like Jeremiah 29 8 where God meets the prophet Jeremiah in the smoking rubble of the temple listen to me Jeremiah is sitting in the ashes of the Holy of Holies, watching everything that he has ever cared for in his entire life burn up. A man who has devoted his life towards warning the Jews about the impending crisis and seeing them ignore him. The Babylonians come in and they destroy the city and they tear everything down and Jeremiah is sitting in the ashes weeping. God comes to him and says, for I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. He tells him, get up. Move on. I know what I have for you. And it's not dust and ashes. And he tells Jeremiah how he's going to lift the people out of slavery. He's going to bring them back into the land. He's going to give them hope. See, we have to rely on promises that even though when it's dark, even though when things fall apart, even when things look the worst, God is still there, and He still has a plan for us, and He still wants good things for us. We can rely on promises like Romans 8.28 that remind us that God works all things together for the good of them who love him and are called according to his purpose. I want you to I want you to pay attention to that. He doesn't work all things for good for all people. It's a fallen world and bad stuff happens. But if you are in his will, if you are called according to his purpose, if you are one of his children, all of the things will be worked together for good. Now, it may not be now. I cannot promise you that it's all going to work out. Sometimes the tests come back positive and you have cancer. Sometimes your kid doesn't pull through. Sometimes it falls apart and that call at 2 o'clock in the morning ends up being a tragedy. Sometimes we are selected to suffer for the cause of Christ so that the world can see the depth of our faith in the way that we respond. Sometimes we're selected for suffering so that the world can see God's abiding peace in us. It didn't work out for Jesus. It didn't work out for Paul or Peter or James or Stephen or Thomas. And it didn't work out for Jeremiah. All of them suffered and all of them died for the cause of the gospel. I can't promise you that it's going to work out okay right now. You know what I can promise you? Everything you lose in this life will be repaid with interest in the next. Everything you suffer for in this life will be a crown in the next. Those that bear the burden of suffering for a short time now will bear the glory for eternity. See, what we suffer now is nothing in comparison to the glory of God that we will see forever we always come back to this quote from Jim Elliot and I know that I've used it before I'm going to use it again he is no fool who trades what he cannot keep for that which he will never lose you hold on to that you go to God in prayer knowing that he is good in all things and that you will be rewarded for your faithfulness to him see Christians should love God expectantly but the beginning of life in the kingdom relies on On this expectancy leading to something else see we're supposed to love God expectantly and then that's supposed to come out of us as loving our neighbors sacrificially Christians should love God expectantly but they should love their neighbor sacrificially the love of God doesn't result in a shrunken world focused life instead of a instead of person's love is supposed to radiate out from them their reliance on God should be poured out in love for the people around them Jesus said it this way, he said, So in everything, do unto others as you would have them do to you. For this sums the law and the prophets. We call this the golden rule. Okay? Right? You've heard this before. This is another one of those things that everybody says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Again, it's in the King James Version, right? Because that makes it more official. Right? If, it, if you have a hard time understanding it, then it's official. Okay? This is the golden rule. And, and we think, oh, you know, hey, this is how profound. Here's the deal. This does not mean what we think it means. The the golden rule is not about avoiding harm. It's not about reciprocity. Okay, reciprocity is a really fancy word that means saying, I get what I give. Right? I'm going to get paid back. Jesus wasn't the first person to talk about reciprocity like this. Most human civilizations, in fact, operate on this concept. Right? I don't do bad things to people, and people don't do bad things to me. That's the way it's supposed to work. I don't go rob a liquor store, and I don't have to go to jail. I don't pick a fight with a guy, and he doesn't shoot me. That's reciprocity. I don't, I don't, you know, knock into my neighbor's car, and he doesn't knock into mine. This isn't new. The Old Testament teaches the idea of treating others the way that you treat yourself. It's in Leviticus 19. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. With this in mind, uh, the great Jewish teacher Hillel taught what they call the silver rule. A person should not do anything to a person that they would not have done to themselves. In fact, this isn't just a Jewish thing either. Buddhism, Confucianism, Greek philosophy, all of them have the same principle. In fact, you'll hear people say this over and over and over again. Well, you know, the golden rule, that just came from, that was Buddhism. Jesus stole it from Buddha, right? He stole it from Buddha, stole it from Confucianism. No, nothing special about Christianity. But There's a subtle difference. There's a subtle difference that the world doesn't catch. Jesus, uh, Jesus differed in what he stressed. The golden rule is not about avoiding harm, right? All of the other golden rules, all the other silver rules or whatever you wanna call them, are negative. Don't do something to somebody that you don't want done to yourself. It's not what Jesus said, it's positive. It's not about avoiding harm because you don't wanna be harmed, it's about doing good for others the way that you want good done to yourself. right? It, it's, not about, it's, it's not about avoiding harm. It's also not about karma. You know, it's interesting how in, in a Western culture, the, the concept of karma has, has permeated everything we do, right? Karma is this Hindu principle where it, it's based on this idea that God is everywhere, God's in all things, and we have a spark of God inside of us, and we're doomed to repeat lives over and over and over again until the balance of our good works, right? Until we do more good things than we do bad things. We work through our karma. Karma is just the balance sheet of the good deeds as opposed to the bad deeds. It's it's the idea that, that someday we'll be good enough to work our way through this karmic cycle, you know, from the cockroach to the cat to the cow, now to the person, and then finally you become a god, right? That's the idea. But see, in America, like we do with all things, we took that idea and said, yeah, that's kind of cool, but we're going to twist it. We're going to make it a little bit different. So in the American idea, we see it as a wheel, right? And it's all about now. Life is a wheel, and if you do good things, good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. Right? It's this idea of poetic justice, right? Where the guy that speeds past you in the car, right, he gets pulled over on the other side of the hill by the cop, right? And you get to laugh at him, ah-ha-ha. But don't laugh at him too hard because then you'll get pulled over. That's karma. We believe this. This is probably one of the guiding forces in American religion. This is where the idea comes. If you send out good thoughts, right, then good things will come to you. Right. This is the Oprah religion or the religion of, like, the promise and some of these other books where if I'm going to send out some good thoughts, and then money's going to come in. It's also the basis of the TV show My Name is Earl. If you guys have ever seen that show, not that I have, but I have. <laughs> it's, it, it's great. I mean, it it's, it's it's, explains it the best. This trailer park guy goes out, gets a lottery ticket, you know, millions of dollars on the lottery ticket, then he loses it. And he concludes that it's because he's done bad things in his life. So he makes a list of all the bad things that he's ever done. And he goes back and tries to right all the wrongs. And, you know, seven seasons later, you know, you you get to see how things work out. That's the way that we view good deeds. We do good deeds so good things will happen to us. That's not what the golden rule is. It's not about avoiding harm. It's not about good karma. The golden rule isn't about earning a better life. It's not about doing good things so that good things will be done to you. It's not about you at all. Like so many things that Jesus said, it's not about you. You're not the most important thing in the universe, right? You're not the king of your own little castle. You're not the god of your own little world. The golden rule is is not fair. We think about it as fairness, and it's not. It's extravagant. I mean, think about the language that he uses. It's not about treating others the way that you have been treated. That's fairness. That's the viewpoint of a person who wants to make sure that everyone gets the same, not more, not less, right? The same piece of cake, we'll cut it right down the middle. I'll cut, you choose. It's fair, right? It's like a, like a little kid in the, play, in, the, in, the, in the room. Oh, you played with that truck for five minutes, so I'm going to play with the truck for five minutes. That's, that's fair. That's not what the golden rule is. It's about treating other people the way that you want to be treated. Not the way you are treated. The way you want to be treated. And none of us want to be treated fairly. None of us want to be treated fairly. Don't believe me? Go to a job where all you do is get a paycheck and nobody ever tells you you're doing a good job and you never get a promotion and you never get a raise. You are earning the money that they promised you'd get. But if you don't get any extra, if you don't get a raise, if you don't get anything, you will feel disappointed, you'll feel depressed, and eventually you'll leave. Why are you leaving? I'm not appreciated there. Appreciated? They let you come to work every day and they pay you twice a month. That's pretty appreciated. Oh, no. Because you want more than that. Nobody here wants to earn what they're worth. Everybody here wants to earn more than they're worth. Everybody here wants to get more than what they put in. You don't put money in the bank or put money into an investment and they give you the same amount of money back and you're like, oh, that's great, thanks. Good job. You didn't take my money and steal it. No, we want interest. You don't invest in a company and expect an equal return. You don't want to buy a house and just want it to stay at the same. You want to make money. You want to get more back than you put in. That's not fairness. That's profit. And that's what runs our country. Nobody wants fairness and love. I don't want my wife to love me the same amount that I'm worth. I don't want her to treat me the same way that I treat her. I want her to treat me better. I want her to love me unconditionally. When I'm a jerk, I want her to be nice to me. I mean, nobody wants fairness. I don't want her to throw back every bad, dirty, nasty thing I've ever done because I've done a lot of bad stuff. We want a person who will love us unconditionally. Nobody wants to bear the consequences of their actions. Nobody wants fairness like that. If You take a test and you bomb it, you want the teacher to give you a curve. You want some bonus. Trust me, I know I've been in school for nine years. I don't want a fair grade. I want the grace grade. You screw up at work, you don't want your boss to treat you fairly. You want him to give you another chance. You want, to, you want him to give you some grace. You want an opportunity to do better. If you break the law, you don't want justice. You want deferred adjudication. You, you want to take that, that driver's ed class so it doesn't go on your record. You want probation. You don't want justice. Nobody wants justice. We all want to be treated better than we deserve. We all want to be treated better than we deserve. And so if we are treating other people the way we want to be treated, we're treating people better than they deserve. We're treating people with unmerited favor. We're treating people with forgiveness, with a second chance. We're giving them more than they gave us. Golden rule isn't about fairness, it's about grace. With one short statement, Jesus takes an ethic that everybody thought that they understood. Everybody thought they knew where this went. Everybody acknowledged that this underlied all the law and the prophets. And he says, yo, you think it's about fairness? It's not about fairness. The law and the prophets are about grace. He takes this law and he changes the implications of it and it's catastrophically different. For many years the basic instrument in all of music was the harpsichord. Right? The harpsichord. Anybody here ever heard of ever heard a harpsichord? <coughs> right? We don't nobody goes to a to a harpsichord bar. You don't have dueling harpsichords. Adams family. Yeah, I mean it's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody goes and listens to the harpsichord, because it's not that cool. You, put a, you push the key down and it would pluck a string. It didn't have a, didn't have a good tone to it. It wasn't fast. It was really hard to play. And about the time that Beethoven came about, somebody figured out that instead of plucking the strings, you could have a hammer hit the strings. They made a piano. And that fundamentally changed the way that music is done. One small change rippled through the entire world to the point where every church and pretty much everywhere has a piano. Most music involves a piano because it's different enough that the implications are universal. That's what Jesus does here. He makes one small change and it ripples through everything. See, one small change in the way that you conceptualize something can change your entire life. One small change in the way that you see reality can change everything. That's what Jesus is trying to get across here. The golden rule is a simple ethic, but it's a simple ethic with an endless list of applications. It flows out of the abundance of God. See, we are called to pray expectantly and that expectant prayer overflows from us in sacrificial giving love this this concept permeates everything we do we are those who have received much we have been we have been bought at a price everything we have comes from someplace else and that has to drive everything we do If we know that we come to God as criminals desperately in need of grace, not justice, how are we going to react to somebody who wrongs us? Right? If we know that we live at the the charity of God, that everything that we have comes from God all the time, that we don't earn or deserve any of it, how are we going to react if somebody comes to us and asks us for something? Are we going to stand there and say, no, you need to reap the consequences of your actions, so, because that's the right thing to do, because that's what I haven't ever done. No. God calls us, through Christ, to remember who we are. To remember who we are. And, and to build our lives around that. This has to change the way that we interact with everything. It has to change the way that we interact at work, the, the way that we, the way that we interact with the people that that we spend all day with at work. Are we gonna abuse them and lie and cheat and steal and backstab and cut their legs out from underneath them so we can get ahead? Or are we going to show them the grace of Christ? I can remember walking into work one day, and I'm, I'm having a bad day, and I'm, I'm, I was in construction, and I'm dealing with fire alarm vendors, and all fire alarm people are crooks, right? They're, they're all crooks. They're all criminals. They're just robbing you left, right, and center. And I'm sitting on the phone talking to my boss, and he's like, well, you know, we probably need to give him some more time. And I'm like, why should I give this guy grace at all? No grace. He's been lying to me and cheating me the entire project. Why should I give him any grace? And I stood there and I was like, he's like, I gotta let you go. I cannot believe I just said that. God's given us grace. We need to show grace in everything that we do. Right? In the way that we deal with people in our classrooms. You know, the, the, the people that we go to school with? Do we love them unconditionally? even the ones that are awkward even the ones that we don't like how do we love the people around us what about our children do we show them grace do we expect more from them that was expected from us do we show them the grace that god gives us every day do we love them unconditionally how about our spouses right do you show your spouse grace what if they screw up really bad? What if, what if you're in one of those times when nothing that they do does not make you angry? Like that? Everything that they, it's like sandpaper, they're just great on you. You know, those of you that are married, know. Those of you that have been married, know. There's days when everything that they do makes you mad. The golden rule says you need to look at yourself because it may not be them. It may not be that they're the ones that are making you mad. Maybe your your attitude or where you're at. I, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know where you are right now. But you have to internalize the love of God and the expectancy of your relationship, and you need to turn that into action in the world that we live in. But before you can even do that, but before you can go to God. relying on Him for everything. You have to rely on Him for salvation. You have to rely on Him to pay the penalty of your sins. That's the first act of reliance that we have. So if you have never done that, and you feel overwhelmed by life, if every day is a struggle, if every moment of your life is a fight, the first thing that you need to do is get on your knees and ask God, to come into your life and be the Lord of your life change who you are change course and then after that watch as he comes in and takes over because we've talked about how sometimes God doesn't answer prayer and God can be hard sometimes and he can most of the time the things that he does are amazing so take a chance rely on God see if he doesn't bless you in a moment we're gonna have a time of invitation if you've never put your faith in Christ I'd ask that you come forward and we'll pray with you we'll teach you what that means we'll spend time helping you grow that way if you've accepted Christ but you don't have a church home you don't know where to go maybe you've been away for a long time I'd encourage you to come forward and join our church. Join with us. Because the Christian life is meant to be lived in community. It's meant to be lived with brothers and sisters. Don't live this life alone. Don't be by yourself. Join a family. In either case, if if you're embarrassed or you don't want to come forward, come and find me afterwards. And I'd love to talk to you. Please bow your heads with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for this time that we've had together. God, I ask that you would be real to us this week, that we would rely on you for everything that we have, for everything that we need, that we would live expectantly, that we would love sacrificially, that this relationship that we have with you would bear fruit in our lives in a real way, in a tangible way that we can see and that people can see, that we would be a mirror that reflects your glory to a dark world. God, we ask these things. We ask them in your holy name. Amen.